Ben Sledge I met years ago, probably 12 years ago. And over the years, he helped start our Gateway Central campus. He was our college pastor at one point. Uh, But before that, he was a war veteran. He has been through the ups and through the downs. And I've seen him grow in his faith and take that faith and bring hope to other people. Uh, we had him this summer as a speaker at Gateway, and it was such a great experience. We wanted to bring him back, and not only bring him back, but put his book in your hands. It's a rated PG-13, maybe R book, uh, uh, so don't leave it on the kitchen table if you have little ones, uh, but I want to encourage you to read it. It will inspire you. It's his real-life story, a memoir that will help you see not just his journey, but what God can do in and through you. So give a big, warm welcome for our speaker tonight, Ben Sledge. So um, I was 22 years old. I know some of you in this room are 22. uh, When I walked into my first minefield... And in the, the grand scheme of, of life and catastrophes or wild events that happen in, in your life, minefield's not really a common one, is it? You know, um, It's usually like heart attack or uh, cancer or even dog attack or getting bit by a rattlesnake while you're out hiking you know, in hill country. This is Texas after all, right? And so... Oftentimes, when you go into conversations with people, you'll play these little games where you're like, tell me about a time where like, you were afraid you almost died. And so when people ask me, and I'm like, oh, well, I ended up in a minefield, they're kind of like, well, how did, how did that happen? You know, that's, that's weird. But, but here's the thing that I can tell you about ending up in a minefield, you freeze. You utterly freeze, and you don't really know what to do. You're just kind of this frozen statue where you're like, don't, don't move. And you're almost afraid to breathe. So what happened to me is I'm in this minefield and immediately I don't think about dying. I think of John Rambo, right? Anybody see Rambo three, Rambo three, where he ends up, where, where does it, he end up in Rambo three, Afghanistan. He ends up in Afghanistan fighting the Soviets with the Mujahideen. And there's this one point where he ends up in a Soviet minefield And he's like digging out. And I'm like, oh no, I don't even have a knife. How am I supposed to get out of this thing? Dig at an angle? What do I do? And before I kind of continue that story, let me give you a little bit of background about myself. This will age me a little bit. um, But I enlisted in the army in 1999, just like the Prince song. Tonight we're going to party like it's... You guys remember that song? Anyone? Yeah? So I joined in 1999. It's peacetime army. Because I needed a way to pay for college. And I I joined and got $10,000 in student loan repayments. Now you can get that for free from the government. I guess I didn't need to join the army. Um, And my parents, even though I grew up like kind of lower middle class, they had both gone to college. And they were like, all right, look, here's the deal. You're going to college. I'm like, great. Are you guys paying for that or what? And they're like, figure it out. And I was like, okay, I guess guess I'll join the military so I can help pay for college and kind of figure some, some stuff out. Um, and I'd also come from like a really long lineage of, uh, of soldiers. But here's the thing. You, you look at me now and you're like, okay, it makes sense that you're a soldier. But that wasn't always the case. I was the dorky kid. 
I was the metalhead, and I looked like Eddie Munson from Stranger Things. And you guys can laugh at this. Look at that. That is me. You're like, what happened to you, dude? And so I got picked on a lot when I was in high school and middle school. And so my mindset was as well, women love a man in uniform. And so so I enlisted, and that was kind of like my famous last words, you know. Women love a man in uniform. And then September 11th, 2001, the towers fell in New York City, an attack on the Pentagon. And by early 2003, I got word that I was leaving for Afghanistan. And at first, I, I put on this like really brave, macho facade where, you know, I was puffed up and I'm like, I'm going to go to war. Um, but the reality was, is I, was, I was terrified. I was really scared. And uh, I just put on that brave face because I didn't know what else to do. So, I had been through, and this is how stupid I was. When I joined, they said, hey, there's this component. It's called Army Special Operations. Your scores are high enough. Why don't you go out for that? I was like, that sounds cool. Special Operations. Little did I know, those are the guys who usually go to the front lines and stuff like that. So I... (laughs) I went to the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and then I go to language school in Monterey, California, and I'm getting all this specialized training, and what's funny is they they taught me to speak Spanish, even though I ended up in Afghanistan. That was weird. (laughs) And so when we head to Afghanistan, I'm scared. I'm trying to puff myself up. I'm trying to act like the, the macho army dude. But I come to find out my four-man team is going to go to the border with Pakistan where the fighting is fiercest, where a lot of people are getting killed, and I freak out. And so I go to my company commander, and I ask if I can stay behind and man a radio. And so one afternoon while we're getting prepped, ready to go to the border because we're in Kandahar, getting you know, settled in, I, I wake up from this nap, and my team sergeant, um, his name's Paul Gonzalez, uh, he's a, a pasty uh, Irish-American with the last name Gonzalez. I don't know why. Um, everybody calls him Gonzo. And this dude's huge. Like, and you'll see here in a second. He's huge, and he's a monster of a man. And I wake up, and he's angrily cleaning his rifle and staring at me like he's going to choke me or shoot me. I don't know, one of the two. And then he looks at me, and he goes, walk with me. And I'm like, uh-oh. So we walk over to this area of twisted wreckage where the fighting had come, when uh, the Taliban had made their last stand in Kandahar, when the rangers jumped in. And there's all this wreckage and stuff. And soldiers had constructed this wreckage of dome and spray-painted Thunderdome over it. And the rumor was is whenever you got into scuffles, you went into Thunderdome to duke it out, see who was the last man standing. So he takes me over to Thunderdome, and I'm like, uh-oh. And he has me sit down on this picnic bench, And he looks at me across the table and he says, I understand you asked to stay behind. And so I shift my eyes to the ground and it it confirmed everything that I knew. I was a coward. And this this is Paul right here. So that's me. You see how big that dude is? He's like, I, you asked to stay behind. You, 
And so this cowardice is eking through my veins and my body. And he could tell. And then the strangest thing happens. His voice softens and he takes on this like dad tone with me. And he sighs. And he tells me he's scared too. He says, every day I wonder if I'm not going to make it home to where we're going. I have a newborn baby girl at home. You know that. I'm afraid she's never going to grow up to know her dad. And so he, he tells me, we need you. We need you to come with us. I need you out there. And, and I still can't even look at him. And I just, I stare at the, this picnic table and I say, what if I'm too afraid to do my job? And he waits until I make eye contact with him. And he says, Sledge. And I'll never forget this because it stuck with me the rest of my life. He said, courage is doing the right thing, even when you're afraid. He said, tomorrow we're all going to get on that chopper and we're all going to be afraid together, but we're all going to go home together. And he said, but I need you. And then he stood up, put his hand on my shoulder, squeezed, and walked off. Now here's, here's what Gonzo did for me. In that moment, and even though he didn't know it, he gave me hope. Hope that we could make it. Hope that we could get through it together. That we could rely on one another. Hope that as bad as things got, we had each other and could make it through. And it got bad. I, I told you I ended up in a minefield, right? Ironically, I ended up in two minefields, so I'm either just dumb or a bad soldier. So, one of the two. But each time we made it through and each time we'd retrace our steps, walk in footprints and just kind of hope <laughs> that we wouldn't go boom. And do you know how hard, how hard it is to hold on to hope when you think you're going to die each day? Not only is there a war going on around me, but there's an internal war that's just daring to hope that I'll make it home. And so, obviously, uh, I'm here today, so I made it out of <laughs> both those minefields. And the thing is, is I, I almost didn't. On December 10th, 2003, we had a complex attack on our small base by Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and I got wounded in action. And I was with one of my closest friends during that time period on base, and he got gravely injured and was bleeding out, and I didn't know if he was going to make it, and you know what I did for him? I gave him hope. I said, you're going to make it. Just hang on. The medevac's coming. We got this. You're not going to die here. Just like Gonzo did for me, I was able to do for him. And he held on and we both made it through. And we're both alive today and still close friends. But here's the one thing that war has taught me about hope is that it can make wounded men hang on a little longer, even when their body starts to give out. Hope can take cowards and turn them into heroes. Hope, when men hope, especially you men, impossible things happen. But to hold on to hope, to hold on to hope, that's a war.
And that's the message tonight, that hope is war. And how do we find joy on life's battlefield? Because here's the reality of the situation. The world is currently selling us a lot of despair, are they not? A lot of despair out there. When we look at the world around us, I think we'd all agree that it seems short on hope, but high on emotion and anger. Um, Since 2020 and the pandemic, it seems like everybody just like started to give up and just accept this is my lot in life. This is the end. And where it's constantly exaggerated or exacerbated by news media cycles, social media. And, and here's the reality. It's making us worse. In fact, the reports are coming out based on internal documents from Meta, which is Facebook and Instagram, that, li- listen to this. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls, and it said that their platforms increase the rate of anxiety and depression across the board for everyone of all ages and gender. So the more time that we spend on social media, the more that we're anxious, the more that we give into despair, the more that we end up into depression, and consider that the vast majority of Americans now have zero to no close friends to rely on, according to reports. But let's talk about us men for a second. We have the highest suicide rate. We dwarf women. Men aged 18 to 20, or 15 to 24 have suicide rates almost five times higher than, than women. And if you're in 65 to 85 category, it's almost 18 times higher than women. From 2005 to 2019, 70,000 Americans died because of deaths of despair. That includes suicide, alcohol, drug overdose, or poisoning. Short supply of hope, and since COVID, it's only increasing. And report after report is that men love to lone wolf everything. I got this, I can do it, I'll handle it myself, I don't need to rely on anybody. I'm good, and yet we're not. And that isn't just the world, that's the Christian church. A lot of young men will get drugged to church by a girlfriend or spouse, and that's just kind of how they end up there. Or we just go to church on Sundays for an hour, and we're like, well, that was good. And we continue to go at it alone, as opposed to rely on the people in the church that are meant to be there to encourage and have us hold on to hope. So it begs the question, how can we have any hope if we're going at it alone? How can we wage a war of hope when we have no one around us to encourage, inspire, or push us forward? And since we're at this men's conference here and we're Christians, here's why this is literally crazy in regards to Christianity. If you know anything about the life of Jesus, was he ever alone? He literally had 12 disciples around him nonstop. He got so overwhelmed by the amount of people that he was constantly surrounded by. Sometimes he would just be like, I am out. I can't handle this. I'm going to the wilderness for 40 days. See you guys when I'm done. I'll be back. He's always surrounded by men that are there to push him and encourage him. And so the thing that even strikes me 
as interesting is even when Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's so overwhelmed, he, he sweats blood, he's still got his three bros around him. Granted, they fall asleep, but the point still stands. They were there. And here's the funny thing that Jesus consistently does throughout all of the New Testament. He talks about hope. Hope in him. Hope in the life of the world to come. Hope in his death and resurrection. But in modernity, hope is kind of this weird word. It carries this era of uncertainty. Like, I hope she likes me. But she may not. I hope that there's going to be barbecue at this men's event. That one we can hope in. I hope I get the job. But here's what's interesting. The, the Greek word for hope in the New Testament is actually a word, word called elpis. And that word carries an assurance that things are going to move forward, an assurance of hope, which it's an assurance of the future. It's assured anticipation. You are sure of your hope. And it's quite the opposite of how we use the word in English. Now, the reason the word for hope in the Greek carries such weight and assurance has to do with what Christians actually believe. Jesus, at one point in John 16, uh, starts talking basically about the end of the world. And he's like, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Things are going to get bad. People are going to get persecuted. Uh, you know, sons and daughters and will betray their parents crazy stuff. Fun, right? But then, this is how he ends it. Check this out. This is, in, this is in John 16. This is what Jesus says. He says, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. Weird. I'm going to tell you about horrible events, but I want you to have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Or another way to translate it is have hope. Have assurance that in me, you can conquer, that you, despite how bad things get, have assurance of your future. Know that I'm going to pull you through. The problem with the, the current worldview today is we go, yeah, well, Jesus, you just don't know how bad we've got it here in 2022 and how bad the <laughs> pandemic was. And historically, that's kind of inaccurate. So let me ask you guys a question. Does anybody want to go back to the Dark Ages or like live through a Viking invasion where there's not modern science or medicine and your lifespan's about 30 years old? So do we, we, we literally have flushing toilets now. They didn't have sanitation. We have comfort. We have like orthopedic beds, literally, that just like massage you while you're asleep. Back then, they're sleeping on like rocks and hay and stuff. And, and I think about this, we're so short-sighted as far as everything. I think about my grandfather. Um, my grandfather was a paratrooper in World War II. Uh, he grew up during World War I and then through the Great Depression. It was so bad that he had to work. His family was dirt poor. Uh, and he also got ran over by a car, had his face crushed. Then, in college, World War II breaks out. And he has to become a paratrooper with 82nd Airborne. He lives through the Korean War, the Civil Rights Movement, and Vietnam. But we get mad, we in this room, when our phones don't go to space so we can Google something to challenge somebody about song lyrics. 
Perspective is, is a really important thing as far as hope goes, too. We have the comforts from day to day that we take for granted, and often we will blame God when things get hard, and we grow in short supply on hope, let alone believe that on life's battlefield, we could possibly have an assurance that conquers. We forget to hold on to hope and wage a war to continue to believe the words of Christ. There's a story in my book that I want to share with you guys. Um, It's going to ruin it for you a little bit. But after I got home from Afghanistan, um, I was was on a very short supply of hope, and I kind of moved to this nihilistic world viewpoint where I thought that nothing really mattered. I had seen the human condition and thought that we were just kind of barbaric Homo sapiens, that's what we do. We're here to fight and kill each other and the end. And so, um, I didn't know where to turn with my life. And so, what I did know was war and combat. I knew war and combat. And so, Gonzo approached me in early 2006 and said, hey, we're putting together a special team. We're going to go to some really bad place in Iraq. And I was like, cool, sign me on. Where are we going? We end up going to Ramadi, Iraq during the surge from 2006 to 2007. Ramadi, Iraq is where Chris Kyle was, Jocko Willink was, Marcus Luttrell was. Anybody who you've ever heard of was in that battle because it was insane. It accounted for half of all deaths that happened in the United States Marine Corps from 2006 to 2007. And it accounted for half of all daily attacks that happened in the country of Iraq. I live in Colorado Springs, Colorado now, right next to Fort Carson. And when guys hear that I was in Ramadi, they look at me like I jumped into Normandy. It's this weird feeling to have been in such a bad environment that people are like, oh, surprising that you did not die there. And it got, again, it got really, really bad for me there. Two of my teammates ended up in a large-scale firefight by themselves, fighting for their lives. My lieutenant hit an IED, almost died. I had to make very questionable and moral decisions that to this day I'm not proud of and that you'll read about in the book. And so one night, you know, I'm in this downward spiral and I, I start drinking this bootleg liquor that we have and I'm angry and I walk out the back and there's this tiny little chapel and I'm mad and I start yelling at the chapel, start cursing at it, grab the bottle and then I chunk it. Doesn't go very far. Next morning I wake up and realize I better go get that. If somebody traces it back to me, I'll be in trouble. So I grab it, you know, dispose of it, but curiosity gets the better of me. And I walk inside the chapel. And as I'm looking around, you know, the pews are there, everything that I'd grown up knowing. I hear this voice behind me and it says, can I help you, my child? And I whirl. I almost like pull up my weapon on this poor chaplain. Uh, and in front of me is, is a man. He's in Marine Corps fatigues. And um, he, he introduces himself as Father Dennis Rochford. And I'm like, oh, crap, now we got a priest in front of me, you know? Uh, and so I'm like, sorry, Father. But I start talking to him, and he intrigues me. And so I, I begin to just kind of hang out with this guy, not really exploring anything spiritual, and come to find out this guy's a Vietnam veteran. 
He's one of six men out of 150 in his, his uh, company that survived the Tet Offensive. And though he survived, he, he was gravely injured. And he's still serving, and now he's in Iraq. And I'm like, yo, how did you become a priest, man? Like, after that, after you were an infantry grunt in Vietnam. And he goes, when the fighting was at its fiercest, I asked God to spare my life. And he did. And so in thanks, I gave my life to serve him. And I was like, geez, that's, you're insane. <laughs> but Father Rochford had had a really hard life. He'd known war most of his life. Because of that, he was an alcoholic. And he was constantly on and off the wagon. You know, he'd be good for a few years, then he was right back on. Good for a few years, right back on. And the ramifications of war and a priest, he was the only priest in the entire Ambar province. So he did all the funerals and all the last rites for Catholics, constantly traveling from base for the men who died in combat. And as I mentioned, half of all deaths that happened in the country of Iraq happened in Ramadi, so he was very busy. And so we would begin to meet in the chapel, and I would ask him questions. I began to ask questions about God. And the thing about Father Rochford was everybody came to him for counsel and care. And he was the one who often had to go it alone. And eventually his tour of duty ends and he hands me his Bible and tells me to keep in touch and and leaves me a handwritten note to the number of his parish in Massachusetts. And and there's a photo of him right up here and me and and some of my team that's going to pop here in a minute. And three months shy of coming home, my my life kind of deteriorates a little more when my wife at the time tells me she's leaving and filing for divorce. So I... Not knowing where to turn for comfort or even how to hold on to hope, I began to read the Bible that he gave me. And what I didn't realize is that Father Rochford had planted these seeds of hope in me. And after I got home from Iraq, that's how I ended up at Gateway. He had planted those seeds, and then I went to Gateway, and those seeds blossomed, and I found hope and became a Christian. Because of his influence and spurring me on, and then eventually Gateway and John Burke and Eric Bryant and Kenny Green. And for several years, I would often think of the priest who planted those seeds, and I would talk about him with my wife. And so one day in 2013, my wife is like, hey, because I had gotten remarried at this point, she's like, you always talk about this priest, like, how come you've never contacted him? And I was like, you're right. I should contact him. And so I went to this old footlocker that I had, which has all my military stuff and memorabilia, and I, and I found that little handwritten note that he had given me and found the number, and I went upstairs to my office, and I called the number. And there's a cheery woman on the other line, and I said, hey, I'm looking for Father Dennis Rochford. I said, I was with him in Iraq. He, uh, he planted seeds of hope in me that blossomed, and I became a Christian because of him. I'm wondering if I can talk to him. And the phone gets real silent. And she goes, I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you this, but he passed some time ago. And I said, how? And what I came to discover was that on September 10th, 2009, Dennis Rochford drove from his home in Narragansett, Rhode Island, to the Newport Bridge where he parked his car in the middle of the lane And he walked to the the edge of the bridge and stood for a moment 
and then jumped over the side to his death. He was pronounced dead at the scene, and he joined the 22 other veterans that killed themselves daily that year. And for me, I was devastated. I'm still devastated when I think about it. I couldn't grasp how this person had been the one to give me hope and then had lost hope. And it wouldn't be until years later that I, I really kind of figured it out and discovered why. Dennis was always alone. He was busy helping everybody else hold on to hope and nobody was able to help him hold on to it. He carried everybody else's burdens and no one carried his. And that was what was so hard to realize. I had gone to him, everybody had gone to him for care and counseling and nobody was there to help carry his battles, his wounds, to give him hope, to encourage him, to inspire him. And this is the thing, all of us in life will fall into these moments of despair. The disciples did it, even Jesus. As I pointed out earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is so overcome, he's so overwhelmed, he sweats blood and he literally begs not to go to the cross. Begs not to go to the cross. But in that moment, the disciples are there and he remembers that by going to the cross is the salvation of humanity, that he can give us hope. And in that moment, I know that Jesus, while he was wrestling, it was a war within him to hold on to that hope and the assurance that he would make it through, that he would be resurrected. And in turn, we could find eternal life through him. So it begs the question for us tonight, how do we find God's hope in the midst of hardships? in the midst of life's battlefield and the things that are going on, economic fears, everything that's going on overseas in Ukraine and Russia and threat of nuclear proliferation? How do we find joy in a world that almost seems to commend despair? Before you think I'm just some doofus who, you know, kind of had this hard life through war, life for me has not been easy even since I've become a Christian. Let me give you just kind of a snapshot of my life in the last two months. Um, so first, my wife and I got just financially just hammered. Um, thousands of dollars in repairs to our home uh, that took a, a huge hit on us. And then as soon as that happened, my mom had a mild heart attack. As soon as my mom had a mild heart, heart attack, um, she got COVID. And then we found out my dad had cancer. And a week after finding out that my dad has cancer, he also gets COVID, and then I'm rushed to the ER for an emergency appendectomy. I'm only about three weeks recovered from that. And it, oddly enough, it still hurts. I guess that's just part of getting old. And so, people have asked me very much recently when they found out like, what's going on, they're like, how are you doing like, and a lot of people I think have expected me to like kind of fall apart, just, oh man, just like really bad stuff. Are you in this well of despair? And, and here's the honest to God truth. Um, I've actually been surprised by joy. I started reading C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. And what's funny is it, it wasn't any of the essays in it that really struck me. It was the introduction by his scribe and in his life three months before he passed. 
C.S. Lewis had lived a life of hardship. He was in uh, World War I, was wounded uh, in World War I, had watched his friends die, uh, had been an atheist throughout that, and had these failing health problems. His wife had died. And yet, this scribe recounts this well of joy and mirth. And he had this hospice nurse too. And so C.S. Lewis would just play jokes on his hospice nurse. So he had to like remove all his books from Oxford and they walled in his hospice nurse while he was sleeping. He thought it was the funniest thing ever to do to him. And here's this guy basically dying. And before he dies, the scribe recounts this where he wrote to a family member and he said, I begin to suspect that the world is divided not only into the happy and the unhappy, but into those who like happiness and those whose odd as it seems really don't. I think all of us have an inherent desire to be somewhat happy. Uh, I would hope so in this room. But I think it's much easier to give up and be miserable. That's the easy road. Choosing joy is insanely difficult when your life's punching bag. Can we agree? It's hard. It's hard to be happy when things are going bad in your life. So here's here's what I want to end with and where I want to land the plane for us tonight and give you some kind of tangible steps to hold on to hope and, and then also just take those proactive steps forward. Um, after the death of Jesus, the disciples are despondent. They're like, this is it, man. He was supposed to be the Messiah. He's not. I don't know. Like, all semblance of hope has just vanished out of them. And they're hiding and they're in fear that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the ruling class are coming for them next. But here's what's crazy. Jesus like, has literally told them for three years, like, hey, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be back. I'm going to die, and you're going to be back. And they're like, okay, Jesus, whatever that means. <laughs> and it's not even the disciples who dare to believe his words. <laughs> it's actually Mary Magdalene. She shows up at the tomb, and she's weeping, and she goes inside, and notices the body is gone. So she runs and tells the disciples. She's like, the body's gone. So John and Peter run to the tomb. They look in there. They're amazed, but still kind of skeptical. And then they leave. Mary is the one who stays behind, right? So Mary's staying behind. She continues to weep. And as she's weeping, she stoops again to look into the tomb. And she sees two angels. And, asks, and they say, why, why are you weeping? And she's like, if you've moved the body, just, just please tell me where it is. And here's where we're going to pick it up in John 20, verse 14. Having said this, she, Mary Magdalene, turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So Jesus is in this transfigured body where he kind of looks like himself, but doesn't kind of look like himself. And so she doesn't immediately recognize him. But here's what I find amazing in this passage. It is not until Jesus says her name that she recognizes it's him. He has to say her name, and then she is flooded with joy and hope. Now, why do I make that point? 
Some of you are in the thick of it right now in this room. I know you are. You have become life's punching bag, it feels like. Some of you have heard you should quit a job, launch a venture, and it seems like it's economically irresponsible. Some of you have heard I should take a risk. Some of you have been given a word about your marriage or a relationship or uh, a struggle that you're going through. And here's the thing. Anytime the Lord calls you to talk to you, to place an anointing on your life, to pull you to a calling, he always calls you by name first. Always. When he calls the disciples, what does he do? Peter, come with me and I will make you a fisher of men. You are going to be the rock. Peter, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Moses, Moses. And as he approaches, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Mary, it's me. In fact, I, I know some of you tonight have, have heard that voice. He's called your name. And that's, that's how I always know it's God speaking to me too. He always calls my name first. He says, Benjamin, have hope. Not the world's hope, but my hope. Trust in me. But the thing is, is in Western American Christianity, we have so neutered the power of the gospel that we are hard-pressed to even dare to believe to have hope because we're afraid we'll be left disappointed. Some of you, God has given a word and promises, but you're afraid to hold on to that hope because of that very fact that you feel you're going to be, end up left disappointed. But here's the thing. In Romans 5, 5, we have this assurance. It says, hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And that is who you hear whispering in your heart and in your mind. That's the Holy Spirit. But here's the catch-22 kind of in all of this. If you want to find hope, if you want to find joy, if you want to find peace in the midst of a world that will always have trouble, as Jesus said, then you're going to have to listen to my voice and trust me. And the part that makes us uneasy is knowing that to hold on to that hope, it is going to be an absolute battle. It's going to be a battle. You're going to go into the proverbial war and take sniper fire as the enemy. But as a former soldier, can I tell you something that's really interesting about uh, something that you will never see happen on the actual battlefield? You never see soldiers go it alone. We're always in teams. And here's the other thing. When one of us gets wounded, we never leave a wounded man behind. If you want to find hope on life's battlefield and believe in God's promises, as men, you cannot lone wolf it in this room. You can't go it alone. Um, at my church in Colorado Springs, I'm, I'm part of a new church plant there called Zeal Church. And we have a saying, we like to keep things bottom shelf. And that means easy enough for you guys to take away and understand not high-level theology, but actual tangible steps that you can take to believe in God's promises. And so here's my takeaway for you, my first takeaway for tonight. You guys are going to have to live in community, especially as men, surrounded by one another 
as the saints. Because here's the reality of the situation. This is what scripture calls us to. It says bear one another's burdens. Nobody bore Father Rochford's burdens. And some of you feel as if you don't have people to rely on to bear your burdens. You need to live connected and in community. You cannot walk through life wounded and expect to continually patch yourself up. It's just impossible. And nor will you have any hope for the future if you do that. And just like Jesus, you need the community of saints to rally around you, encourage you, inspire you, push you when things get hard. And after all the craziness of my life in the last two months, do you know why I made it through that and why I have joy and why I have hope? Because I had a community of men who surrounded me. They showed up for me at the hospital. I was just drugged out of my mind saying loopy stuff, but they were there. They didn't have to be, but they fought to be in there. They didn't let a wounded man go alone. And to this day, I, I wish I could have been that person for, for Dennis Rochford. I, I, wish I, could have, I wish I would have known the internal torment and hell that he was going through because he needed other people around him to bear his burdens. So here's the second takeaway for tonight. If you're wondering about how to hold on to hope, you got to listen for your name. You got to listen for that still small voice encouraging you, telling you to risk, telling you to take that step, telling you to put down your sword and let God fight for you. Trust that the Lord has you in the hard times and in his assurance of hope. Because there's actually this story in 1 Kings about the prophet Elijah. And he challenges the prophets of Baal to this contest of whose God is the mightiest and whose God is the greatest. Who can call down fire from heaven first? And sure enough, it is only Elijah who's able to call down fire from heaven. And he defeats the prophets of Baal. But then the queen, Jezebel, gets mad and says, I am going to hunt you down and kill you. And guess what? Elijah gets afraid, leaves his scribe behind and runs off to the wilderness by himself. And this is what he, he tells the Lord. If this is the way things are, you might as well just kill me. Just let me die. But he's out there. He's alone in the wilderness by himself. I can't make that point clear enough. But then he goes to this cave and he hears, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he goes outside and it says three instances happen. First, there's a strong wind that like rips apart the mountain. And says the Lord's not in the wind. And then an earthquake happens, but it says the Lord's not in the earthquake. And then a firestorm happens. I don't even know what that is. It sounds awesome. But it says the Lord's not in the firestorm. But get this. This is what it says next. Elijah hears the sound of a low whisper calling his name. And when he hears it, he wraps his cloak and hides because he knows it's God. And then he hears the same voice. Elijah, what are you doing here? And it is always that still, small voice that is going to be the one to encourage you to hang on to hope. Have you ever thought about this? Your conscience never says things that are counterintuitive. Your conscience is typically always negative. Like, you can't do that. You can't start a business. You'll never date her. You suck. 
We all know that voice. But the voice of the Lord is a low whisper and it calls you by name. And it says things that are counterintuitive to all the labels that the world would give and put on you. So I think some of us are in this room right where Elijah is and you're hearing, what are you doing here? He's calling you by name and asking, what are you still doing here? And it's because you're afraid to hope. Hope for that assurance in the future. But I want you tonight to lean into that assurance of hope. If you remember from the beginning of this session where I talked about my team, Sergeant Gonzo, you'll remember that courage, real courage is doing what's hard even when you're afraid. But also remind yourself in Christ that you have that firm assurance of hope and faith. Because make no mistake, life, we know this, life is a battlefield. Clinging to hope is a war. But when you do it in the midst of other brothers and you listen for that voice and you cling to hope, God is going to deliver even when it gets hard. And here's what I can promise you. Here's what I can promise you. I'll close with this. If you will cling to that, you will find joy even in the midst of the storm. Let me pray. God, I pray that we would be men that dare to hope. Men that understand that it is not in your way carry any bit of uncertainty, but it carries the firm foundation that things will come through and that you do not disappoint. And when you call us by name, we can be sure it's you. I pray for those of us that feel alone and wounded and trapped on life's battlefield that we would rally the saints toward us, that in these small group times we would talk with one another and say, I need the saints, I need other men rallied around me because I am walking through life right now with a limp. God, that we would, we would dare to hope that, that we would hear that voice. I pray right now that you are just whispering names in this room. John, David, Thomas, Eric, Noah. And that out of that, you would give them a peace that passes all understanding and give them a hope that does not disappoint. In Jesus' name, amen.